Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Micah. We're in chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amen. You may be seated. Awesome. All right, guys. Good morning. Glad to see you. Happy Father's Day um, to the dads. And... uh, Thanks for being here. Glad to celebrate Father's Day with you with an incredibly obscure passage from the book of Micah. Super pumped. Um, We are in a series looking at the exile of Israel, um, which is a strange little section of Scripture. Well, I shouldn't say little section. It's actually a pretty big section of Scripture. Um, There's a significant uh, historical event going on in Israel's history And uh, many, many, many of the prophets of the Old Testament speak to this event. And so what we're trying to do as a church is kind of learn together about the history of exile um, and just get a a little bit of information about that so that we can kind of understand some of what we read in, in the Old Testament, but also look at exile and find ourselves in similar places that Israel found themselves when uh, they were basically left in uh, the uh, into the hands of their enemies and taken off and away into exile, um, and and what that brought about in their nation, what that brought about in their literature, um, what that brought about in the way of their 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 sorrows and their griefs and their hopes and their expectations, and just finding ourselves in the midst of that story and how it communicates differently. Um, to us in the middle of what we might say is our own exile. Um, Some of us find ourselves in a place where we might feel uh, like Israel at some of the times in this period, abandoned by God, forsaken um, by their God, or at other times um, they felt as if God didn't even exist at all. Um, Many times they found themselves in a place of, of lament and mourning what had happened to them. Um, And so in in that way, we find ourselves sometimes in the place of exile, but we also find ourselves in the place of exile in that often we don't feel like we're at home. Um, Exile was actually the the final time that Israel ever had a true home to call call their own. They lost that home and they never got it back again. They had kings who were reigning in Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom had kings who were reigning in Samaria. Once exile happened, they never had kings again. They never had a nation state for themselves again. They were always, from that point forward, um, under the rule of others. They were under the rule. They did not have a monarchy that followed after the God of Israel. They had to follow after the rulers of other nations, like Babylon and Persia, Greece and Rome. You might have heard of a few of these. 
they lost their home. And even though they were brought back into the land, they never truly felt like they were at home again. And sometimes this is our experience as humans, right? We're like, man, I'm at home, but I don't feel at home. I, I'm under a, a reign of peace, but I don't feel inner peace. I'm, I'm in a place where there isn't battlement around me, and yet still I feel like I'm at war. It's this strange kind of existential place that we find ourselves where we're just like, ah, am I ever going to rest? Am I ever going to find myself at home like that Franny Crosby poem that we just heard that so beautifully articulates, am I, gonna, am I going to feel real rest? And where is it that I'm going to find that rest? And so we, as we look at Israel's exile, we'll find a lot of uh, these places to kind of identify with them uh, ourselves and uh, look at the exile um, that we are in as well. So we've looked already at the prophet Isaiah. Uh, we're looking now at the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah is one of the minor prophets. I always like to say don't tell them that, but uh, we call them minor prophets because they're really small books and they're toward the end of the Old Testament. Um, and, and there's not a whole lot of rhyme and reason to how they're arranged. So some of the prophets spoke to Israel and, and, uh, and Judah before the exile happened. Some of the prophets were there before, during, and after the exile, like Jeremiah. Uh, and then some of the prophets came back from exile with the people and spoke the prophetic word to God's people there. So there are all sorts of places where these people speak from. Micah is one of the guys that prophesied before exile. Okay, And he was actually a contemporary of Isaiah. So Isaiah is a much bigger book, probably more popular. You maybe have read it a little bit more. Isaiah and Micah prophesied at around the same time. Okay, 600 years before Christ, 100 years before the Babylonian exile took place. These words were being spoken to Israel uh, and warning them that exile was coming. Okay, one of the things that these prophetic books show us is that what God says actually does come to pass, um, and that He does hold all knowledge of all of human history, and so He can, by the power of His Spirit, produce a prophecy through a through a prophet's mouth that says this is what's going to happen, and then that thing exactly does happen. Right. So that's a really neat thing we get to see as we look at exile. Um, but what we're going to see today is just kind of this, this ultimate moment where God says, I'm, I'm saying that this is enough. Um, and he, he brings a proclamation of judgment against Israel. We see it in Micah, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Isaiah. We're going to look at all of those things, and we're going to try to identify with Israel as they are sent off to uh, to a far-off country. So uh, what Nathan just read was in uh, Micah 3 and also in Micah 4. We're going to try to cover Micah 3, 4, and 5, so it's going to be super fast and super fun. Um, so if you've got a Bible, turn past Isaiah, past Jeremiah, past Ezekiel um, into the minor prophets, and you'll find Micah in there. <clears throat> Bible apps are great. Grab one of those and read through. If you didn't need a Bible, by the way, we've got some back there. Um, but we're going to spend most of our time in Micah 3, 4, and 5. Um, but let me pray for us. I'm going to pray for dads and pray for us. And, uh, and then we'll get started here. All right, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this beautiful day. Uh, we thank you that you are our Father um, and that you give us uh, just the, the fullness of uh, yourself, your love, your care, um, your guidance, like we just sang. You give us often um, your discipline and your correction. Uh, like a loving Father, you care when we are wayward and you want to bring us back onto the path of life. 
Um, and we see in you that this is the model of fatherhood, to, to be a, a guide, to be strong, to be a leader, to be helpful, uh, to sometimes be a, a disciplinarian, to sometimes be someone who, who firmly and strongly corrects onto the right path. Um, but more than any of this, to be loving and to be present. What a gift. What a gift, God. So we thank you for dads. We thank you that they image you in so many beautiful ways. Um, and we pray, God, that you would help them. Um, what a hard job. Not easy at all. And so we pray that you would give great assistance to dads, whether they're dads of little, little, little ones or dads of scary teenagers or dads of adults. Um, no matter where they are, God, would you give them help in that place. God, help them not to cower. Help them not to... Um, uh, back away from responsibility, help them not to be apathetic, but help them to be courageous and to engage and to be loving as they see you do that same thing to them. Um, and God, our church, for whatever reason, is filled with a lot of people who've lost their dad. Um, and so we pray for those today. God, uh, some of them are here and some of them aren't, and we just pray that you'd help them. Uh, today stinks for them. Um, so would you hold them and uh, be their dad and uh, surround them with people that love them to hold their arms up. We love you. You are enough, God. You are enough. In Christ's name, amen. Ah, I hate this day. I was going to have Jason do that part, and I should have. Sorry, I lost my dad. So that stinks. God help us. <clears throat> so at the end of this message, I get to speak to what it feels like to be in darkness and how these passages help us. Because God does not leave Israel, even though it's dark. Amen? Man, we need that message. So last week... Micah spoke judgment against Israel. And part of the reason that he spoke judgment against Israel is because they played like they belonged to God, but their behavior was completely anti-God's ethic and God's holiness. They loved to go to temple, right? Um, but they rejected God's laws, uh, they loved to pretend like they were holy and that everything was all right and that it was all good. Uh, and yet when it came to their interaction with their poor neighbors, uh, when it came to learning how to deal with people around them who were broken and struggling and suffering, um, they, they were crooked, crooked people. Um, and so their, their, their ethic, their, their practice, their, the, the, the manifestation of their beliefs, they didn't line up with who God really was. And God in his grace came to confront that. And, and like this is so hard sometimes to gather in our minds because we think judgment means bad, right? We think darkness means evil. We think that, that God is just automatically gone if these terrible things take place. And that's not the truth of scripture. We see time and time again, God is present in the dark. And that even with his judgment, it's for mercy's sake 
right? He's always after compassion in the end. He's always pursuing the healing of his people's hearts, always. He's always after that. And even sometimes we see that God in his supreme mercy allows those who are far from him to endure difficulty, to, to see loss, to have heartbreak, so that they might be lowered to their knees and look to something beyond themselves. Right? This, it seems mean when we look at it. We're like, what a jerk God can be. Right? Like, I had a text interaction with somebody just this week who said, why does God hate me so much? Right? It was one of those really, really long texts that you're just like, Ugh, I need to see you as soon as possible. I need to hug your neck. I need to look in your eyes, and I need to tell you that God has not left you. Right? Because the, the pain of these things is real, and it's deep, and sometimes it seems so permanent. And yet behind this all, exile communicates this so beautifully. Behind this all, a compassionate God is pursuing the restoration of a people who are far from him. Israel revealed in their behavior that they, though, though they belonged to God, though they were in God's kingdom, though they had kings and priests and prophets, they were revealing with their behavior that they actually did not belong to him at all. They were just like the nations around them. And eventually, because God is holy and because God is just, he had to say, enough, enough. If you will continually, perpetually, repeatedly, and stubbornly behave as if you are not mine, I'm going to treat you for a time like you are not mine. And he pulled back his protection. Often Israel had enemies come and try to invade, and God would, you know, like, do the Gideon thing, <laughs> or he'd whittle down the army from 30,000 to 300, and then he'd give them pots and torches <laughs> and beat 300,000 men in a battle, right? He would do things like that. He would answer prayers to stop the sun from going down so that the warriors had enough time to beat the bad guys, right? He would do these crazy supernatural things to protect the borders of Israel. This was often their experience. But as they continued to hard-heartedly rebel against his covenant, eventually he pulled that protection back and the invading armies were not stopped. First Assyria and then later Babylon. That's what happened, right? So a lot of times we see the language in the prophets of God saying, I, wrote, I raised up this army and I did this with them and so on and so forth. And God was absolutely sovereignly ruling and reigning over all these empires. But a lot of times God was just simply saying, okay, the consequences are yours. I'm going to leave you to suffer the results of your own brokenness, and I'm going to stand back for a bit. And that's why we see these things befall Israel, and they are taken off into exile. Now Micah 3, 1, 3, 5, and 3, 11 show us that Micah brings strong judgment to the leaders of Israel. Okay, last week we saw that, that Micah said, everybody is, is, is a part of this. All Israel is sinned. He made that statement. And then he, he kind of gave us some hope at the end last week, right? It wasn't all doomsday. There was some hope at the end. And now he comes back in Micah 3 and he says, hey, leaders, I'm talking to you. 
right? So in, in Micah 3.1, he says, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? So he comes to the civil leaders of Israel, the kings and the rulers, those who had responsibility over the, the governmental affairs of Israel. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking. Isn't it your job to do just? Isn't it your job when you're put in power to execute uh, the, 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 the strength of the government for the, for the, on the behalf of the other people, for their sake, for their good? Is that, is that not your job? But because you've basically, it's kind of scary, he says, because you've devoured people, you've, you've eaten them up, <laughs> you've taken advantage of them, because of that I'm bringing judgment. And then in Micah 3, 5, he, he proclaims against the prophets. He says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So God comes and speaks a strong word against the prophets who are saying nice things when they're getting padded pockets, right? But declare evil things when people aren't paying. It's another way of saying they're, they're, they're corruptly proclaiming a peace to a people so long as, as they can stay wealthy. They're, they're speaking lies to people to try to make them feel okay for the evil that they're doing just as long as they continue or, or they're, they're uh, continuing to be provided for. So he has a bone to pick with the civil leaders. He has a bone to pick with the prophets. In Micah 3.11, we read this just a second ago, Nathan did. It says, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, and yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall, shall come upon us. And so here he's speaking against the leaders. He also speaks against the priests, and he speaks against the prophets. And what do they say? They say, hey, no. like we heard last week, ah, we're God's people. Don't worry, nothing bad's going to happen to us. We've got the temple. We've got the sacrifices. This is David's city. We're all good. Don't worry. Disaster won't come. And he says, no, therefore, Micah 3.12, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is poetry. Micah's saying that Zion, which is the spectacular mountain of the Lord. This was the place where people were supposed to come visit Israel, look at that hill, and think, there must be a big God here. Like, that's what Zion was supposed to do. It was supposed to draw the heart and the eye up toward heaven and make people go, the splendor of the God of Israel is real. It's huge, right? That's what Zion was supposed to be, and what did he say is going to happen? It's going to be Illinois. <laughs> Plowed flat, baby. Cornfields as far as the eye can see. I lived there for five years. Yuck. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Nothing spectacular about it. When you know you've got to drive eight hours through that, you just, yeah, really? Like, I'm driving to Denver. There's excitement. I'm driving to Chicago. Blah. No glory in the field. There's nothing to lift your wonder, right? That's what he says. Gonna have, Zion's going to, there's going to be no wonder left here. Nothing to make people think God is spectacular, right? Jerusalem, which is, I mean, this is the city of God. This is the city of David. This is this well-put-together, tightly-packed, very unified and spectacularly laid-out city 
They're supposed to, just, as you walk the streets, you're supposed to just go, oh my goodness, they thought of everything. You know, that's what Jerusalem did when sojourners came and wandered amongst the people there. And what does Micah say is going to happen? They're going to become a piled up heap of ruins. Rocks just stacked on rocks. You know, like a kid trying to make a castle at the beach just gets plowed over by the waves, laid flat. He says the mountain of the house will become a wooded, a wooded height. The mountain of the, height of the house speaks to this ornate temple that sat in the middle of Jerusalem. Micah says it's just going to become some small little wood building, just a shack. That thing which testified to the presence of Almighty God is going to just be a hut that you wouldn't give a second glance to if you pass by. Right? This is the devastation that was going to come on Jerusalem. And we see other places where this is proclaimed. Micah's not the only one that proclaimed it. Isaiah, in Isaiah 39, he said something similar, verses 5 through 7. He said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Everything that you know and that you love and that is dear is going to be taken away. Jeremiah says something similar in chapter 25, verses 8 and following. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the other prophets, hundreds of years before it happened, said this place is going to come tumbling down. And then it did. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 25, we find the story of when it happened. I'm not going to read all the way through it. I encourage you to look at it. It's how far the exile spreads, all the way from the end of 2 Kings into the Minor Prophets. We see this story woven throughout the whole thing. Eventually, it happened. It came to pass. Babylon attacked. They sacked not just Jerusalem, but actually the temple. There's a spot in there in 2 Kings 25 where it talks about how they took the bowls and the, and the lampstands and the pots and the... And the the, 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 uh, the showbread tables. I mean, it's just every little thing. They took it. They took it all away. Took the glory of God off to Babylon. It finally did actually happen, and these people were left just devastated. I mean, this was basically unimaginable to Israel. They, they, they literally could not imagine their world like this falling apart. It was worse than they ever thought was possible. And it's crazy because in the middle of all of this, over and over and over again, God makes sure to plant seeds of hope in the middle of all of this destruction. 
right? We saw it last week. We see it again this week. You see it in pretty much every single one of these prophets, like is here at the beginning of Micah 4. He says there's, there's something great that will result after all of this devastation takes place. And it's something that would just stir your heart to think, oh my goodness, what tremendous greatness is ahead. Listen to this, Micah 4, 1 and following. It says, it, come, it shall come to pass in the later days, latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above all the hills, and the people shall flow to it. So he just said it's going to be a little shack, and now all of a sudden he says it's going to be the highest of all the mountains. Right? And he said many nations are going to come, and they're going to say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. If you're ever with us around Advent, we read that section of Scripture. It's repeated in other places as well to talk about the coming of Jesus, right? But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Listen to what this sounds like. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant. And those who were cast off I will make a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The lame being gathered as a people. The ones who have been pushed off to the sides of society being pulled in to become the remnant of God. What does that sound like? It's the ministry of Jesus. That the, the, the word of the Lord will actually come out of his mouth is testifying that the greatness of Israel, even though it will be sacked and burned down to the ground and the people will be brought into exile, the greatness of Israel is yet to come, that the highest of heights, the day when the mountain is the tallest, when all of the peoples will come and say, let's go, let's run there, let's learn about God there. That's all pointing forward to Jesus coming. And doing a great work to bring together not only the people of Israel, but the people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues and all places so that they might see and declare that the Lord is good, that he is with us, that he has not forsaken us. And there's something absolutely mind-blowing that happens in exile. Right? Follow me here for a second. If you trace the history of Israel over and over again, God gathers and gathers and gathers. Right? He pulls them in from it. From Egypt and from other places, he pulls them in from, from the oppression of other kingdoms and he makes them a close, closely packed, solid nation of people so that all of the people of God are in one place, right? And we know because of the story of exile and the waywardness of mankind's heart that ultimately they break God's covenant and God sends them into exile. Some of them go to Assyria. Some of them go to Babylon. Some of them in the middle of those battles run wherever the heck they can go and find shelter. Some of them actually steal Jeremiah and run to Egypt with him and go hide in Egypt. Other people go to northern Africa. Other people fl flee to, to Asia Minor. They flee to all of these places. And then you see the shifting of kingdoms that happen. 
Babylon becomes powerful, then Persia becomes powerful, then Greece becomes powerful, then Rome becomes powerful, right? Which all is foretold by God in the book of Daniel before any of it happened, just in case you're wondering. God told the greatest shift of empires ever. He foretold it all to Daniel before any of it happened. And as those nations were rising and falling in power, the peoples were continuing to just be strewn across the earth until the ministry of Jesus and the beginning of the church and the death of Christ and his resurrection. And then 50 days after Passover, this celebration called Pentecost, which actually was two weeks ago or last week, I can't remember. Pentecost, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, the apostle Peter after Jesus tells the disciples to go wait in the upper room, the apostle Peter comes out and proclaims to the people who are gathered for Pentecost. He proclaims the gospel. And because the Holy Spirit had come, the, 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 the disciples who had been waiting in the upper room start proclaiming the glory of God in all of the languages of the people who are present on that day. And where did those people come from? They came from where they once fled in Assyria. They came from one, where they once were forced into exile in Babylon, from Egypt, from northern Africa, from Asia Minor, from Bithynia, from Macedonia, from all of these places throughout the whole earth. God's work to spread the gospel to the world was embedded deep inside this exile that he caused to happen. This great darkness that befell Israel was the seedling of the blessing of God to all nations, which was promised to Abraham. If Israel would have stayed home in Israel and never been spread to the nations, Israelites would have never learned the languages of other peoples and been embedded in the cultures of other peoples and made their homes and their cities and their families in the nations of other peoples. They would have never come together to celebrate at Pentecost and hear the good news gospel proclaimed in the languages of their land and then gone home to those places and when returning with joy and gladness in their hearts would have told their neighbors, oh, hey, guess what? God did it. The mountain of the Lord is the greatest of all the mountains. He's come and he's spoken with his own mouth. We've seen the lame leaping. We've seen the deaf hear. We've seen the blind eyes open. Suddenly those who don't have a home are welcomed into the family of God. It's unbelievable. There were people that were dead and they're alive now. There were these guys who were lepers and they lived in a colony estranged by themselves. And God gathered them into his arms. It's spectacular. You must hear the greatness of God. The gospel went forth to all nations and the beginning of it was the darkness of exile. There is a great hope in the middle of our dark days. Sometimes we don't get to see it. Some of these people that went to Babylon, they never came back. It was 70 years if you were a 70-year-old the day that it happened, I doubt you lived to see its return. Some of them died in Babylon or Persia or Assyria or Egypt. But God was sowing the seeds of a great kingdom in the middle of this crazy darkness. 
It's unbelievable. And some of the good news that we hear in the middle of all of this points us so clearly and with the pinpoint of a needle to Jesus. Look at Micah 5.2, right in the middle of Micah saying, it's going to go bad, it's going to get dark, I, I've got to do this for the sake of my own name, I must uphold my holiness, I cannot abide your sin any longer, but listen, there's hope, listen to some of what he says, but you, O Bethlehem of Hapra, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days." I do not know how you look at the Bible and say Jesus was some random dude. Six hundred years before Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem. Six hundred years. From you, O little Bethlehem, from you will come a ruler. Therefore, verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That's the prophet saying you're not going to ever have a king again until King Jesus. And it was true. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Caesar of Rome, they never had a king again. And then Jesus was born. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Right, so it's a, it's a nice history lesson, right? It's kind of cool. God told the future. That's neat. You know, I know Jesus is a big deal, so it's pretty cool we got to hear about Jesus. But what do I do? What do I do with all this prophet stuff? Right? And I think that's where we, we, we take it in and we consider the significance of the darkness that Israel faced at this time. This, this was a time where, where they, they were ashamed because they, they, they stood arrogantly thinking nothing bad would ever happen to them. They were the precious people of God and eventually that arrogance turned into great, great shame. They were br brought so low by this defeat. Great many of them concluded that in the end, God must not really be for us. Some of them even lost their faith. They said, if he is real, he doesn't care about me. That, that's the kind of stuff that came out of their mouth. As a nation, they had so much to be proud of. Great armies, beautiful cities, abundant livestock, and all of that went away. And they fell to the bottom of the totem pole. They were a byword among the nations. They were mocked and laughed at. Right? And in these dark days, we often also can see our own. That sometimes, and listen, we need to be careful here, whether it's because of our own sin, 
or because of the sin of others, or because of the sin of the age, this world is just jacked, right? That sometimes, because of some of those things, we find ourselves, like Israel, wondering, does God even care? Does he even love me? What is he doing to me? Is he even listening? We may face so much darkness where we conclude, if there is a God, he, he, he forgot me. I see him blessing those guys, but I guess he's just their God and not mine. Maybe tempted to lose faith or shake our fists at heaven, right? Which we see Israel do in two weeks. We're going to study Lamentations. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they were just a big pile-heaping mess of anger and sadness and confusion. It was, and it's in the Bible for you and for me so that we can know that even in the middle of these dark days, we are given the story of Israel so that we can see that the darkest of days for them eventually became in the hands of the good shepherd king the glory of not only Israel, but the glory of God himself. That even in that darkness, the seeds of his kingdom were being planted. You see, God took the ruins of a single temple in Jerusalem and rebuilt a global church with little temples strewn far and wide. Once the glory dwelt in one place, now it's everywhere. The Holy Spirit infilling Christians and spreading out through the nations. God took what was a scattered people and built a network of prophets and evangelists that would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the greatest of the good news is that God himself, in the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ, that he came and faced the ultimate darkness. You see, Israel's darkness, and we'll see this as we continue in exile, Israel's darkness did not result in God completely abandoning them. There's a little story tucked at the end of Jeremiah. It's also repeated. It's tucked at the end of 2 Kings. It's the story of a king who, after exile, he was in Babylon. The king took him out of prison and sat him at his table and gave him something to eat every day for the rest of his life. It's this little story of hope in the midst of all that deep darkness. God never truly abandoned Israel. He did not forsake them and he has not forsaken you and the promise of God's permanent presence among us even in the midst of darkness is seen most clearly because Jesus endured the greatest darkness of not just being crucified but of having God the Father turn his face away something that he has promised he will never do to you and to me that because Jesus faced that ultimate darkness we don't have to so that even in our real and present darkness, we know that we have a Savior who abides. We have a God who is close, who is not deaf to our ear. He can, he does, and he will deliver. Okay? He can, he does, and he will deliver. I don't know what it looks like. I still don't know. Right? There's unsorted stuff in all of our lives that we still don't know the end of. 
We still don't know how will this ultimately be a part of God working everything together for his glory. I still don't know. But I know that the promise is sure. Just as that promise to Bethlehem, the ruler would come and he did, so too the promise of Israel being restored. It's my promise. It's your promise. That no matter what deep darkness we suffer, there is a God who abides with us in it and is working among us to create a great story. A great story for his glory that will put us right front and center at a place that matters forever. He will crown us with many crowns. He will visit us with great splendor. He will restore to us all of the joy that we ever thought we lost. There is hope in the middle of darkness. And though we're cast off and sometimes feel like we're estranged in a far off land, we can hold on to hope because God is faithful to his promise. Next week, we're going to look closely and see all of the little places where God inserts his promises in the middle of this time for Israel. And see that God, too, is whispering to us in the middle of some of our greatest pains. There are promises to come yet to be fulfilled that he is faithful and just. He will do it. We can bank on it. We can guarantee that he will do his work. And in the words of Micah 5, 5, we know that because Jesus came, because Jesus suffered, because Jesus endured the ultimate darkness, we know that he will be our peace. That it is possible, even in darkness and confusion and fear, that it is possible to have peace because of the truth of Christ. He loves you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He is with you. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we treasure the hope that we have in you. And God, so often we need it deeply, desperately. We're crying out for it because we can, like Israel, we can see and face and feel the darkness. We can sense it at times overwhelming us, pushing us right to the edge of completely doubting your existence. Certainly some sitting right here right now, we doubt your goodness. We doubt your power. We doubt your ability. Or we doubt your desire. We doubt that you care. We doubt that you hear. We doubt that you are with us. We doubt that you have power to help us. We struggle. It's real. And God, I thank you that your word doesn't just dismiss this. It doesn't tell us, oh, it'll be fine, and just lead us to carelessness. But rather, we, we see the pain of your people when they felt like you'd left them. Yeah, it was because of their own sin and rebellion, but still, you left them. You let these armies invade them and take them away. They felt abandoned. But you were doing something, even then, that was greater than any of them could imagine. You were actively and truly bringing about the fulfillment of your promises. So God, please, would you, like we sang a minute ago, would you grant us faith? Would you grant us hope? Would you help us 
to trust in your guidance. We are so limited in what we can see. God, we are prone to short-sightedness, and that's just part of the human experience. By your Spirit, through these stories, in your word, would you please lift us to see that you are faithful, that you have promised, that you are working out those promises, that you can, that you are, and that you will deliver. We need you to help us trust in that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.